catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Everybody, this is Gemma. We know you're going to love this one. I know I've said this before, but this is an individual that you've all been asking for. And we finally were able to schedule my really good special friend that actually started all of this. This is the man that you saw in the very first moment of the Keepers. So tonight we're going to be talking to Tom Nugent, who is in Michigan. And Shane and I are at our home. Tom, we want to welcome you. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. And thank both of you for the good work you're doing here, keeping this story not only alive, but up front and in our faces and refusing to let it go. That's a gift to everybody. So I say thank you. Thank you, because we're actually going to be, Shane and I are looking forward the next year to pursuing information about some of the other murders. And we're going to talk to you about that tonight as well, because we know that's something that you've done a lot of research about and interest in. But the first question I would like to ask you is, when was the first time you ever heard the name Kathy Sesnick? It was 1995. I had been for five years in the 1980s, a writer, feature writer at the Baltimore Sun. So I had a keen interest, although I no longer worked there. I had a keen interest in the paper, and I read it every day. And, of course, as soon as I saw their stories begin to run, I knew the reporters personally. I'd worked with them before. And when I saw that this involved a murdered nun and some questions about possible abuse, I immediately became riveted, and I began to read their coverage. They came up with a new story. And I did that partly because I was from the Sun and because I knew those guys. And also because I was raised Irish Catholic old school. And I can't remember, Gemma, I think you escaped. Something tells me you're not in that world. That was the world of the nun with the ruler and the what I call the Sisters of the Sacred Misery. Yeah, we had the nuns with the rulers. I was fortunate enough not to be hit on the knuckles with the rulers. But yeah, we... I was in Catholic school for 12 years. Gemma, I love to joke about it now. It gave me wonderful things. 
they're the reason I was able to raise a family, four fabulous daughters. They taught me Latin. They taught in high, by high school. We translated the Aeneid senior year of high school. And so I am eternally grateful. And I sometimes, believe it or not, even though I'm the, so some Catholics feel I'm the bad guy that's trying to go after the church on abuse and on murder of the nun and so on. I'm eternally grateful that everything is, is mixed and complex. And there were wonderful people in my Catholic high school upbringing who gave me great gifts, such as language, Latin. And it's because they taught us that if we would take the trouble to learn how words work, we would have enormous opportunity down the road in a variety of different fields. And so I became a newspaper guy and I made a living. And now I've been five glorious uh, granddaughters and two grandsons. And if I'm not writing, which is what I love, I'm running down there to spoil them with candies and toys and hugs and all I can give them. But that doesn't mean I don't also understand all of the repression that was at work. It bears directly on what we're going to talk about because the question of what was wrong with Father Maskell, allegedly, and why all of this abuse was taking place is deeply wound up in that repression. I jokingly, I like to say, I was raised by the Sisters of the Sacred Misery. You were following, I just want to clarify for our listeners, the reporters were Bob Erlinson, who was still living, and then who was his partner? Joe. Joe, uh, I think it's Narasky, but go ahead. They're the two that you were reading their articles, and that piqued your interest in the, in the case? Yeah, because those guys did a good job, They and I'm sure they met some internal resistance at the newspaper. Believe you me, I worked there, I quit. I'm not going to get on my hobby horse. I walked out of the Baltimore Sun with no pension. My point being, they were censoring the fact that the entire city was run by a criminal political machine, and they were doing everything from secretly buying up condemned buildings and then insuring them under disguised identities and then collecting millions at their own in homegrown Downtown USF&G giant insurer, the cops and the FBI knew which numbered Swiss accounts these stolen monies were going to. The mayor's nickname at the police bar, I kid you not, was Willie the Tort. His first name was William, and we think we can fill in the blanks historically. And they would joke at the police bar. Of course, I found people who wanted to blow the whistle, and I dug, and when I finally had everything together to prove that Harbor Place, this great miracle of salvation, that because we built this wonderful Harbor Place and the National Aquarium beside it, we're bringing tourists by the millions each year and saving Baltimore? Sorry. The developers carried the money out in wheelbarrows. The schools got worse. The ghetto is still horrible. There are murders every weekend. You know all the story here. And it was being run by criminals. And about the fourth time, I said, I'm not just going to write a story. I'll take you to my source, Mr. Managing Editor. Never been done in journalism. Get in the car. You You can sit with me and talk to the guy at the aquarium who will explain to you how they doctored all the books and the bonds and kept everything off the record and so on, but still managed to use public money. And how it was a scam that led to the creation of all of that retail merchandising at that ridiculous harbor place where a, an ice cream cone cost six dollars and kind of when all of this came down you can see my motivation i wound up saying uh-oh 
if that nun's murdered in a school where, where there are allegations going on of this kind of abuse that Jane Doe and Jane Roe and other witnesses are reporting, boy, I was on that like a hawk. And I'll just end it by saying that led me to work my nerve up. And by 1990, I guess probably 97, I was making my first difficult attempt. One of the great days of my life was Bud Romer, the legendary historic detective who worked for years on the investigation, had told Berlinson and Narosky, uh-huh, we don't talk to the reporters, go away. This is an ongoing investigation. And he told several other journalists that who had hoped he would be. He, covered, he worked on it for 15, 20 years, and he, had, he was an encyclopedia of the nun's murder. I swallowed hard and scared half silly. I drove out to Essex where I knew he lived, and I parked that little Chevy Sprint, I, that old beat-up car I was driving, and I marched up to the door, and I did the best Irish song and dance I was capable of. His eyes lit up, and he said, you want a cup of coffee? And when I heard that, my eyes lit up. Just <laughs> within half an hour, we were in his garage, and he was pulling open cabinet drawers and file cabinets and showing me autopsy photos of the poor nun's skull and her, her body, its position on the little the little hill, the little mound of dirt at the joke at the in Lansdowne, the graveyard where he was found. And he then spent over the next 10 years, I would go to Baltimore frequently and we'd spend hours trying, I'd bring him all the new information I had and he would try his hardest to see if he could add insight. And it was out of that that I've I gradually put together, along with the work I did with you and some of the people that you recommended I try and talk to, and I went through the yearbooks at Keogh and all of that long journey back and forth until I was able to put it together in a strong enough story that, although the sun refused to go there, the city paper editor of that day, I give that guy a world of credit. He said, looks to me like you're in order. You're not going crazy here. We're running it. And they ran it on the front. Who killed Sister Kathy? And as you that became the foundation stone of a lot of what followed later. And we're gonna we're gonna come back to that. Tom, can you tell us about your background and career? I know that you've mentioned that you went into journalism, but what kind of led you into that? Oh, I guess I I grew up in an Irish family. My mom would be quoting Dickens. She had a high school degree, that wonderful woman, and she would be, I, we'd watch A Christmas Story on television, and what's his name, the old uh, shyster guy, that uh, Scrooge. <laughs> I am the spirit of Christmas past. And she would infect you with this, well, she would quote John Macefield, we must go down to the sea again, to the swirling ocean and the ships, and so on. And uh, I want to, in the seventh grade, I recited that poem, and uh, the English poet Macefield, and won the little poetry whatever it was, a box of candy, for the best poem of the day. In our ongoing journey, dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. 
Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. So I knew I had that yearning, so I did some college reporting on the Calvert Review, the paper at the University of Maryland, where I went. And then I had a child by then, so I had to pay the bill. So I started first two years after graduating in 1967. I joined Liberty Mutual in Washington, D.C., and my territory was Northern Virginia, and I sold insurance. I sold businesses. I would go to a restaurant or carpet outlet. Wiz Cleaners is one of my clients. We can do better. Save you money. And I made 1,000% of quota. I knew, I, I loved it. I loved the challenge of it. But my wife of that day and I, then oh, we had a big banquet and, oh, isn't this wonderful? And they're selling all this stuff. Isn't it great? And they said, here's a bonus. Here's a gift. So Sarah and I went to Miami and left the little kid, Carrie, four years old with my mother. And we took a cruise ship for a few days. And we went to Nassau on the Bahamas. And so we're in uh, on the second day there, I saw a rack where they were renting motor scooter. And I said, Sarah, are you brave enough to jump on the back of this? I promise I'll try not to wreck. And we went all around New Providence Island where all the tourist ships come in. But we found people living in huts in the most primitive circumstances, about 15 miles out of town. I can remember to this day, the story I wrote. I think I call it behind my back door. This is the world you don't see. I asked Mary. These were black people, the ones we found, and they were sitting cooking around an open fire. And I said, Mary, what do you do through most of the day? And she said to me, oh, easy. We wait for the government man with the check and cook food in the pot. <laughs> and she went on to explain this welfare society that they were in. The indigenous people and the slaves who wound up in the Bahamas are a separate story. On the front page right now, because the hurricane, just, Dorian just went through there. And I got to give my little grandson, Dorian, a plug. We've been kidding him for days. Give us a break, Dorian. I have a grandson with that. I took that back, and one of the, one of the scariest days of my life, I walked it from the Liberty Mutual office where I was working to the, on 15th Street to the Washington Post. I stood in that lobby 10 minutes, gulping and sweating with fear. Then I got on that elevator and up to the fifth floor, and Maury Rosenstein, the travel editor, I never forgot this. I walked in sweating blood, and he was very cordial. I said, I was on a vacation. I've written something here. I just for the moment, I, I've written it. I don't know. Would you at least take a look at it and maybe someday? Sure, I'll read it. Put your phone number on there. I'll call you back in a few days. He called back. He said, this is pretty good. He said, you've got a knack for the lingo. You seem like you're able to make things come alive. This scene where the boat glides like a silent shadow through the night and so on. Not bad. He said, however, you don't know anything about journalism. So 
you need to take this back and tell us what hotels we can stay in. How long does a typical stay last? Where do you rent mm-hmm. a motorbike if you want to go look into the world of Mary and those people uh, that nobody ever sees, really? And when it's complete, uh, I'll give it another look. At, I did all that one fine morning, a month or two later. Front door of our little apartment in Beltsville, a suburb of uh, Baltimore. I'm sorry, uh, but we were living in Beltsville outside Washington, D.C., where I was working at Liberty Mutual. Anyway, I go out to the front porch Sunday morning. Fingers crossed, I'm hardly daring to breathe, and I flip through, and there it is on the front of the travel section. Behind the back door, inside the, I got $35, and inside the world of the Bahamas that nobody sees. It was all there, and man, I was hooked. So I called him back, and I knew I couldn't go to work there, had no experience. He, He told me, Tom. My advice is go on down to the cradle of journalism. Go to the North Carolina newspapers, the Charlotte Observer, the Winston-Salem Journal, the Raleigh Observer. Go on down there and carry this clip with you everywhere you go. David hmm. Brinkley came out of David Brinkley came out of I think it was Winston-Salem. Half those guys, those big names on network news, started at papers like the Columbia, South Carolina, I think it's the journal. So I went I took a week off from work. I got the clip and any other stuff I had that I thought might help. And I drove the uh, the roads and the byroads of North Carolina. And they told me no in Winston-Salem. They told me no in Raleigh. But in Charlotte, a kindly editor said, I got one spot for you. You won't like it. Ninth guy on a nine-man sports staff. For the first year, at least, you'll be covering high school swimming meets, and a ping pong at the at the old folks' home. But it's a job, and we'll give you $135 a week. I said, where do I sign up? I said, with one proviso, if I do it, okay, and I learn the, learn the damn business, will you let me switch to the new side? We will. Okay, I said, I take your word. I'm going to call you on that. So I worked my butt off. Yeah, I worked my butt off, and I did okay, and they were pleased. And they switched me on over to news. And right before, I'll just give you one last anecdote because I love these. I love to tell this stuff, especially I taught journalism 15 years at at the University of Maryland, UMBC. Maryland, I know. I remember that. Yep. You can imagine the joy I took telling them how I'm on the sports staff, but every night in sports, you stay till midnight usually, most days, because pro baseball, the game ends at 1030, and then you got to start writing the story. That's Bob Twins in six is the headline, and the third, you write it, and by the time you're done, it's midnight, 1230, even 1 a.m. There was a little Greek diner down the street, and I, we, some of us in sports, us guys, would go down and get a juicy cheeseburger, unwind from the ship, but we enjoyed that thoroughly. I started to notice that there were these motorcycle guys coming in there. And they had pagan jackets and tattoos and oh, big bushy beards and earrings. Scary. So once again, I watched them for a few nights and I said, Nugent, take a deep breath. Swallow hard, my man. And so I went over to their table. You don't know me, but I'm telling Nugent, I write for the paper and I got an offer to make you guys. If I tell it like it is and don't paint you as monsters. And try to respect what you think you're doing out there on those big Harley choppers with your mamas on the back. Will you let me write the profile and we'll put it in the paper and tell the world who you really are? They bought it. So I had a freelance photographer I lined up, really good guy, took great photos. Got to scare in my life. 
I meet him the first time. They put me on the back of this. We're at 85 miles an hour. I'm hanging on to this pagan. <laughs> oh, my goodness. scared utterly shitless. I was never so frightened in my life, except when I jumped out of a plane on one of my first stories at the Baltimore Sun. That's right. Uh-huh. On the last meeting I had with the big dog, the president of the club, if that's the right term, he said, Tom, I think you've been an honorable man. I believe you're a man of your word, but I am here to tell you something. We take something very seriously, and that's our mamas. Now, I know we had some parties out there in the woods where the mamas, a couple of them were dancing nude there on the table. If that shit gets in the paper, I'm going to tell you, Tom, respectfully. And I said, we sure what? He said, if, if you disrespect our mamas, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. <laughs> I said, believe me, your mamas are going to get so much respect, you won't believe it. Okay. <laughs> the reason I think this is germane and hopefully a, a realistic answer to your question, and not just an old man's ramblings, I took that story. I'm down in Charlotte. I've been there a year and a half now. I, they put it on the front page. I sent it to, to everybody from the L.A. Times, and the guy at the Detroit Free Press said, after they hired me, and that's when I began to work for big papers, including I have reported over the time for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Boston Globe, Mother Jones, and we would be here all night. I had to do it because I had so much freelance to do in order to buy these right. girls all the sweaters they wanted. My point is, that story didn't just, hey, I'm going to have a wild time. and never... I knew. And the editor in Detroit said... When I got there, he said, Nugent, I read the first sentence of this story, which was, I think the sentence was something like, you hear them before you can ever see them, like a swarm of enraged hornets climbing the crest of a hill. You hear the sound of their engines. Paragraph break in italics, the pagans. <laughs> and the oh. editor in the court said, Nugent, I read that, and I yelled at the managing editor to hire him. When did you go to the Sun Papers? I worked in Detroit for several years. Then I wrote a book for Norton, W.W. Norton, Death at Buffalo Creek, based on that gigantic, one of the nation's worst coal mine-related disasters in 73. I did a lot of book writing and stuff and some consulting out of that. And in 78, January of 78, I decided I needed to pay some more bills. And my life changed, and I took what I had to the sun, and they hired me. I worked there until 83. When I walked out of there, cold, no buyouts. Today, I get a little peeved, and Amy, my wife Amy, tells me, calm down. Today, it's all buyouts, and my buyout was, go down to the cashier's window. You have $49 in extra sick pay that you can collect on the way to your car, and I cried my eyes out. And I said, mm. you get in that car, you're done crying. I said, I cried like a baby. It was the end of five years of struggle. And I was telling mm. them, you shall not pass. I am not. There are people getting killed in that city every night as a direct result of these illegal financial arrangements. And every one of those editors down there and most of the reporters Know it, and they would rather say it's a job. I need to check and let and light things up. You, you've seen Baltimore's homicide rate as we speak. That's not occurring in a vacuum, and those drugs aren't moving up from Central America and ultimately onto the streets of New York and places like Baltimore. Which means those guys who get shot every weekend. Eight guys got shot last weekend in Baltimore. Two died. They got yeah. shot fighting over the territory. 
Okay. He said, I ain't doing it. And man, I paid a price. So what? it's been a hell of a journey. I feel very fortunate, very privileged, and I'm not even very mad anymore. I, I thank God if there if she exists, I want to say a great big thank you. I don't know how the hell I'm still here at my tender age of 76, but I am, and I am determined to go fighting on this. I just did 50 hours of pro bono work for a black Marine in Mississippi whose farmland was stolen. The guy went over there and risked his life, and the power structure down there, and we've already published his op-ed. This was a pro bono lawyer called me, and will you help? Of course I'll help. There's no pay. We'll worry about pay later. This shall not stand. So you hear, you can hear us. If we go back a little bit in time, where do you remember where you were living and working in November of 69, which was the time of Taffy's death? And, yeah, of course I do. In November of 1969, I had just been hired a few days earlier at that free press job that I got after that motorcycle gang article. I moved from the Charlotte Observer to the morning paper of the Detroit Free Press in the last week of October 1969. On the day she vanished and was later found murdered, I would have been in my second week on the Detroit Free Press. Now, were you aware of what was happening in Baltimore, or that was not until later? That was not until later for me. Okay. There was no way. There was, we knew, I mean, only in the extent. You recall that King had been assassinated in, in 68 when I was still in, in, in college. And then Baltimore had blown up and Ted Agnew had gained so much fame by reading the riot act to black leaders. You stood by, you cowards, you did nothing. And your people burned this city. Mm -hmm. Why Nixon picked him, picked Agnew as his vice president in the 1968 right. election. And so I knew Baltimore in that broad general way. And I knew the Catholic mm -hmm. Church thing very well. But I was. So not, you, it would be years later before I was drawn into mm -hmm. Sister Kathy's murder. Okay. So you and Amy has how many children at that time? Amy and I have three children now. May I mention them? They're wonderful. My daughter oh, Katie. Absolutely. My daughter, <laughs> my daughter Katie is an RN, a wonderful nurse. In fact, I've gone into her. I'm about to start a volunteer teaching writing at Thornapple Manor Nursing Home here in a day, a day Monday. And I went when my daughter Katie was an RN to caring for patients at a tender care nursing. I went over there for a year. I went over every few days and, oh, we wrote fabulous stories about the residents and put on a little newspaper. We did a story about an old woman. Oh, wonderful. And she had been as a young firebrand driving beat up old stock cars on dirt tracks all over Michigan in the 50s and 60s. And here's this old wonderful old lady, and she had a bow, and she said, I didn't take anything from those men. By God, if they were going into the turn at 85 miles an hour, I was going in with them. You got it? And we would write that up and take a photo, and oh, everybody had a ball, and I love that. So I'm going back to that. That's volunteer. That's not for money either, but I wouldn't miss it. And I hope I get a few years of that I can share the joy of. But that was the spirit behind all of this. So my second daughter, Brett, is about to become an accountant, maybe with the FBI. She just got her finance degree at University of Chicago, and they now lives in Seattle with her husband, who's a fairly high muckety-muck software engineer at Google. And they have two little wonderful boys. And then Tess is a, a geology engineer. When people do a building, like a high-rise or an apartment building, Tess is on the team that goes in and makes sure they don't 
pollute the groundwater or foul the air and all that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Tom, what was your situation when the Doe Row case hit the news? Okay, then that's 1995. And by then, I, am, I have just completed my 14 years as a journalism instructor. They have a fancy term, adjunct professor. Uh-huh. Slave wage laborer is more like it, but I did it. 14 years. By 95, I left in 94. And by 95, I was engaged in the struggle of a full-time freelance. So we, this is all a little too serious it's sounding to me, so I'm going to laugh a little and have fun with this. I worked for eight years at the For People magazine as a national stringer. The phone would ring. We've got a problem in North Carolina. Get to the airport. I'd go to the airport. I'd chase the story for a week, all weekend, whatever it took. And then they would take all the reporting I did. And I did that for eight years, at the height of which two wonderful things occurred during this time. First, Frank Sinatra's armed bodyguards threw me out of the Long Island Coliseum physically. I managed to get in this dressing room, and I said, Mr. Sinatra, you just said that you supported the President Reagan's invasion of Grenada. Can you elaborate? Our readers, we have 26 million readers and people. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $129 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $249 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And he began to scream, Who is this guy? Who is this? Get him out of here. Rocky, Ronaldo, get back here. Get him out of here. What's he doing in my dressing room? Tom, we're answering the question about where you were during the Doe Roe case. I know it was during that time that you actually met with Jean, Jean Doe, Jean Wainer. Hi, she's allowed me to quote all of this many times. Okay. I made the call. I can't remember the sequence exactly, but I think I learned from a cop, or maybe it was from the guys at the Sun, that who she was. I called over there with my, my, my heart and my throat. I'm interested in this, and I'm a reporter. I mean, I've been an investigative reporter. Maybe I can help. She said, come on over. I'll be happy to talk to you. I went over there four exhausting hours. There was something going on, a family gathering or something, and so we wound up sitting on the floor in the hallway that led into the laundry room. And she told her story. And within, of course, within 20 minutes, she was sobbing and beating the floor with her fists and telling me things that were hard to believe. After four hours, I had a ton of information, and I knew that something real had to be at the heart of it. And so I uh, I began then in earnest to start digging. Right. All of that material. 
And I was, I think I was more exhausted than she was. Mm -hmm. I was driving home. I could barely hold my head up. It was so, you've done this. It was so grueling and emotional. But it was so long. Wow. But that was where it started for me. And it was after that that I then eventually reached Bud Romer and got him to talk. Right. The autopsy photos and all of that. Mm -hmm. So that leads into, can you explain, I know this story because I was with you, but can you explain to our listeners how the Who Killed Sister Kathy story actually developed and how and why it ended up in the city paper. Sure. What motivated you to begin writing that thing? Because that's what everybody recognizes when you're sitting in the attic. And how many words was that? That was a newspaper story, but it was 6,000 words long. Okay. That's and you're, you're, your listeners would really like this, I think. When we did The Keepers, the part of it in my attic, Ryan White, the director... Sure. Said to me, he said to me, Tom, John Denham, I think I'm saying it uh -huh. right, uh, is going to be taking the film. We want you to pick up the pick up that city paper over there with this monster sized story. And we want you to read it as dramatically and feelingly and take your time from beginning to end. That it must have taken, I swear, half an hour, thirty-five minutes. Wow. I was pooped at the end of that. And he said, you're damn right. We've done this many times and it is really exhausting. That wasn't the point. Here's the funny point. We're done. And John suddenly lets out this wail of um, hysterical anguish. Oh, my God. I am so sorry. Oh, my God. Ryan turned white. I turned to him. What is it, John? What's wrong? He said, Tom, I don't know, I don't know what was wrong with me. But I am so sorry. But you're going to have to do it again. I said, oh, no. can we at least take a break and get like a Coke and get some sugar? Because I'm pooped. He said, why do I have to do it again? I said, and he said, Tom, you have a great big white no hair sticking out of your nose. Oh, no. Yeah. And it simply won't do. So this is, I like to joke and tell, especially tell students, here's the real nature of being the investigative reporter. I'm standing up in the attic, and it takes me five minutes to get a grip on this hair, and then I got to pull it out, and it hurt like hell. And the tears are running out of my eyes, and I'm going, and I finally pull the hair and a little bit of flesh out of my nose, fall back on the chair, and I, and take, they give me a 10-minute break, and we read the whole damn thing over again. Uh, that's this real <laughs> trouble with investigative journalism. You have to get it right. Yeah, tell us how it happened. Now, the story developed because uh, I'm probably a bipolar neurotic who doesn't know how to let go of anything. And uh, once I sank my teeth into it in 95, I worked on it sometimes for weeks at a time, sometimes for a day at a time. And sometimes if I had an hour, I got on the damn horn and I pushed it and I went, I flew back to Baltimore probably 10 times from my home in Michigan. I would stay in the little cheap e Econo Lodge that I had picked out or the Microtel. You ever spend the night in the size of a shoebox, but it's cheap. And I would eat hamburgers and try to save money because I paid all of the expenses myself. Plane fare, cabs, whatever it took. I had to hustle that money up in addition to feeding my family and so on. But by God, if I had my teeth in that, they, I, I'm not going to let go. I went to Pittsburgh for a week. I hung out with her, the nun, with Sister Kathy's friends, her cousins. Uh, I heard heartbreaking stories about what happened when the police failed to, to deal with it and their family was left hanging and all that. 
I went to her tombstone. Have you guys been to where she's buried? I have not yet. Not yet. It's quite moving. It's on the side of a hill. It looks down on the Monongahela River. Mm-hmm. And her father is 10. It, it'll, if you're a father like I am, and I promise I will not blubber here. Uh, so I have to say this as carefully as I can. If you're a father and you stand like I did, and there's Sister Kathy. It's just a simple stone, and it says, here lies Sister Kathy. Says Nick, oh, none. Uh, the school sisters in Notre Dame. And then 10 feet up the slope, here lies Joseph Stesnick, former postal worker, family man. And they're like eight, 10 feet apart. And I'm quit crying there. And here's why. Her cousin, Sister Kathy's cousin, I sit with him all afternoon. He starts crying. He says, Tom, this is so heartbreaking. He said, I don't even know how to tell you. He said, we all began to live in fear of Joe, Sister Kathy's father. Mm-hmm. Was not because he was angry or because he was mean-spirited or anything, because he was so desperate. If you saw him coming home, yet here comes Sister Kathy's father, and we know what it is. And he would be embarrassed and look at the floor, but then he would say to you, going back down to Baltimore this weekend, I'm off, Monday's a holiday. I got three days. Guys, I need gas money. And they would give it to him. And he would drive alone to Baltimore and carrying her picture. He would knock on door. Have you ever seen this woman? Ever seen the priest? And he did it for years. And it was too much and too difficult to go up against that. And he's on the hill, eight feet above her. I stood there. Must have blubbered for me. Five minutes. But then I got in the car and I came back and I said, Now, wait a minute. You can't let go of this. So I worked faithfully for 20 years, off and on, most of it off. Of course, I had to be hustling all the time to earn money and so on. But every time I could, then we got going. You started your group and I started going to those meetings and meeting with people like Abby Schaub and then I interviewed lots of witnesses from Teresa Lancaster. And I worked my way through probably, based partly on the list I think you gave me and a year right. that you sent me, I was able to gradually do these interviews. And that day by day, over years and years, I mean, I made an internal commitment. Nugent, you will either get this done or you will be six feet under. I'm a, I was in the Marine Corps. It isn't, can you take the hill? You're either going to take the hill or you won't be back. (laughs) Bye, guys. My advice is take the hill. And they usually do. Okay. Then, thanks to your efforts, Jim, and I, as you always want to honor what you did, by bringing all those people together, you gradually wound up bringing the reporter from Huffington Post to our meetings. That led to more people joining the group. And it was the Huffington Post story, I'm convinced, that persuaded the Keepers Group and their funders, whoever their capitalization people were, to invest. That Once that went national like that, and she did a good job, it was a good story, and it went national, I think, I think that then the big boys at places like Netflix were willing to consider the idea of doing this. Which meant taking a risk. Angry Catholics and there's millions of them out there mm-hmm. are no small stopping block if you're going to do this. But to their credit, they did it. I want to say in support of you, and you didn't say this part, but I'm going to say it. Once you finished that story, you sent that story to the Sun Papers, 
to the Washington Post and to the New York Times, and they were all scared to death because of what that what your story, who killed Sister Kathy, was implying. And I remember that how frustrating it was when you would go all the way up to the editor, and then the editor would say, "No, there's too many legal issues here." And when you decided to go with the city paper, it was a smart move. But that wasn't right, because since then, yeah, the Sun Papers and the Washington Post and the New York Times can't get enough of the keepers. So you deserve the credit. No, you do deserve the credit for what you tried to do with that story, because it was not right that they said no to you. The city paper was an underground, kind of to the left, more liberal, and they were happy to do it. But. It shouldn't have had to happen that way because you worked your butt off trying to get the big newspapers to pick it up. So Thank you said for that. No, you do deserve the credit for that. Uh, but let me, rather than I get uneasy when anybody says anything so nice, because let me go back to humor. I remember the day, probably the worst single moment. A thoughtful woman, the editor at The Sun, and I was fond of her, still kind of like her. And she read it and approved it and took it to another editor and it made its way up the chain. And then it happened. I came home here on a tough afternoon. It went up, and my God, can you remember? Those are still the days when you had a telephone answering machine. Talk about ancient history, but I hit the button on my telephone answering machine, and that woman, that editor's voice said, she probably was too embarrassed to want to talk. I got a message, which was essentially this. Tom, it's me. I'll get the sun. Yeah, yeah. Listen, maybe we'll just get to the point. We're not doing the story. There's no chance, so you better go elsewhere. Good luck, click. It went from, it could go Wednesday to, we're not doing it. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.